you all so much uh, for joining us tonight for our first ever event series for Representation in Cinema. Representation in Cinema is a series that's all about talking about the representation of Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color in movies. And tonight I'm pleased to be talking about The Harder They Fall. Tonight's event is hosted by Our Voice Project. We provide a safe space and platform for BIPOC to share experiences and stories that have shaped them into the people that they are today through visual storytelling. Our goal is to dismantle destructive stereotypes of BIPOC perpetuated in the media by providing educational resources across marginalized groups brought on by the stories we share. Our Voices Project is also a committed community member and partner providing opportunities in line with the New York State culturally responsive sustaining education framework to help educators design and implement a student-centered learning environment that affirms racial and cultural identities, empowers students as agents of social change, and contributes to an individual's engagement, learning, growth, and achievement through cultivation of critical thinking. I'm Jacqueline McGriff, the director and producer for the Our Voices Project, and joining me on the panel is Deborah Alvarez, our cinematographer and editor. We also have Courtney Schaus, our education outreach facilitator, and she will be working behind the scenes to make sure that everything runs smoothly. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Deb. And now I will turn it over to Deb, who's going to give us a few housekeeping items for tonight. Okay, how's everyone doing? Well, can't answer yet, but it's okay. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's doing great. Um, so for housekeeping rules, we have um, basically everything uh, is going to stay muted for the event. Uh, this event is going to be recorded, so everyone who's registered will receive a link to watch it. It'll also be on our YouTube channel. Um, and we encourage questions, comments. Um, please type them into the chat. And yeah, uh, we will answer questions towards the end of the program. All right. Thank you, Deb. All right. So um, if you have been following Our Voices Project for some time, you may recognize this next guest who will be introducing three of our panelists tonight. Justin Connor is a senior at Arundaquite High School whose mission in life is to become a teacher with a focus on social studies while also teaching black history in his classes. He also portrayed uh, Bass Reeves, so he's our Bass Reeves, um, in the Black History Month series, a collaborative project between Arundaquite High School's Diversity Club Mosaic and Our Voices Project, where he highlighted many aspects of Bass Reeves' life and contributions to our society. Justin also gave a speech to the West Arundaquit Central School District Board of Education about the need for anti-racist curricula as a way to stop racial abuse and discrimination in schools. We welcome you to the panel, Justin. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Katrina um, Overby. She is an assistant professor at the School of Communication at RIT. Uh, as an activist scholar, Dr. Overby Overby uh, researches Black Twitter, uh, social media and culture, African-American cinema, race and identity in television and popular culture and sports media. She's a Black film slash media enthusiast and worked toward um, worked at the Black Film Center archive uh, located at Indiana University, where she received her doctorate in 2019. In 2021, Dr. Overby published the article Red Bottoms, Gold and Ass, the work of Serena Williams and the cover of Harper's um, Bazaar, and a, and a co-authored book chaptered, or chapter Black and Quarantined, celebrating Black identity during COVID-19 via Instagram. Uh, next, I'd like to introduce uh, Gabrielle Brannigan, 
who is a teacher leader at the Anti-Racist uh, anti Curriculum Project. She is a social studies teacher and a coach in Monroe County. And last but not least, I'd like to introduce uh, Nick Robertson, who is who has a PhD, uh, is an assistant professor at uh, of criminal justice at the Rochester Institute of Technology, or RIT. He has a research slash uh, teaching interest in crime, law, um, defiance, race, ethnicity, and immigration, and the African diaspora. Um, he is an Aronicoit resident, a Australian community member, and the director of research and policy for a race, or eliminating racism and seeking equity, a local racial justice organization. All right, thank you very much, Justin. Um, we also have a, another special guest with us tonight, and that is James Samuel. James Samuel, also known as Bullets, is an English writer, director, singer, songwriter, and music producer from London. In 2013, James worked alongside Baz Luhrmann and Jay-Z on the music for the blockbuster, The Great Gatsby. James served as the film's ex executive music consultant. He also, as you know, made his feature film debut with The Harder They Fall, released in November of 2021. We are absolutely honored to have you here with us tonight to talk about your film. All right, so let's start with what did we love and appreciate about the film? All right, and I'll start with, let's see, I'll start with you, Deb. All right, um, so... The big thing, and I actually was not into Westerns growing up, like my dad would watch them, but I would kind of just look and be like, oh, a bunch of old white guys, and <laughs> you know, just hang, hanging around with some guns. And, and so I wasn't really getting into it. And then once I started really getting into this film, um, I just realized just like a whole new world <laughs> that was not shown. Um, and the biggest thing that I really appreciate of the film was the representation of the women um, and the strong roles that they played. Uh, I loved seeing that personally. And I think, I don't, I don't see enough of that <laughs> in that sort of genre, especially. So it was, that impacted me the most. Katrina? I think I just have so many moments um, that were phenomenal from the action scenes to, um, some of the quick um, witted humor as well as um, conversation between a lot of the characters um, and a lot of the different things that played with time, um, you know, even as they engaged with the audience. And I think I want to share one now when um, Trudy Smith and um, I think Cherokee Bill are walking past the train and their very first scene together, the train reads out C.A. Bozeman. And so it was a shout out to Chadwick Bozeman. So I think, you know, even in a way, not just within the cast itself, but, you know, with the audience as well, just playing with time and, and making the audience, I think, feel included in different ways as well. So there's a lot of great moments um, in the film. Nick? Sorry, let me unmute myself there. So um, in terms of what I loved and appreciated about the film, uh, I guess four things I'll mention here, but there were many others, but I'll stick to four here. First and foremost, the soundtrack. Uh, I really enjoyed the soundtrack. I, uh, I'm Jamaican and I grew up in uh, Jamaica 
and uh, I read and watched Westerns growing up in Jamaica. Uh, that was part of the culture. And, and, and uh, American country music was quite popular in Jamaica. I don't know if people uh, know that. Uh, but I really liked the soundtrack, even though it was not specific to the period. Uh, I was really interested in, in that it encompassed music of the entire African diaspora. There were significant amounts of, amounts of reggae within the film. There was hip-hop, R&B, even some Christian, maybe some soul music in there. So I really liked the connection to the entire diaspora there, even though this is a, a story about the American West. Uh, in terms of gender, uh, uh, I, I liked the depiction of both men and women. Uh, and uh, one of the female characters here, uh, is what we might now refer to as potentially transgender. So I like that uh, kind of uh, in terms of uh, her dress and so forth. So I, I like that connection too, um, in terms of you know representation of women and and uh, different types of females, so to speak. Um, overall, though, I thought it was really important then that this film uh, puts back people. Um, back into the public imagination of the American West, like very much missing from the public imagination of the American West are Black people. There's like no Black people there. Uh, but we know uh, that approximately 25% of cowboys were Black. Uh, and there were Black towns that were established in the West as a refuge from uh, white racism and violence, right? Uh, and so um, it, it, it's, 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 it's a in terms of the public imagination, somewhat of a corrective in that, you know, these people are out there and existed. Uh, I also like the portrayal of Black ownership of various businesses um, and their kind of entrepreneurial spirit and, and even them establishing their own towns, once again, as a refuge for white racism in the American West. Uh, but I'll leave it there for the others. Gabrielle? Um, so I agree with Katrina, just the wit and the humor was phenomenal. Um, but I did grow up watching Western, similarly to Nick. Um, and what I really, my favorite part about the film is that it kind of disrupts the like whites versus Indians narrative, right? And so this is the first Western I've ever watched where I saw myself. And that in and of itself was fun for me. So I was hooked. But then just the narrative, there was a true story there. It wasn't an us versus them. There was no necessarily like, good and bad right and so that for me the disruption of that narrative of the american west and then on top of it seeing myself and then being able to laugh was phenomenal and so that's what i enjoyed the most and justin would you love and appreciate uh for me it was the uh the representation of black people because um Right now, uh, I'm not seeing a lot of like strong representation of African-Americans in, in movies and in books and around my school. So it was really nice to see like a really strong representation of great black characters and great black historical figures that I learned about um, and seeing them portrayed so well. And uh, it, it kept me really interested. Um, usually Westerns aren't really my type. I'm more like a comedy or action kind of guy, but this had just about all of that. So it incorporated a bunch of stuff that I liked and it kept me really hooked. So that's what I loved. Thank you. Um, and I will also uh, share what I really appreciated about the film. So I am also someone who grew up in Westerns, mostly Clint Eastwood and like Tombstone and, and stuff like that. And uh, I really did enjoy watching those, but like to see the harder they fall, especially like just us having our own thing. I think I think what frustrates me the most is like oftentimes there are, there are movies that are made and then like it's then we get like 
the black version like of that movie when I'm like we have our own stories we we have our stories to tell um the fact that it's there's a thriving neighborhood right like there's a there's a thriving community people own businesses um so you have you have business owners you have outlaws right and I think also too like the way in which we um glamorize you know, outlaws, you know, especially given like the number of Westerns that we've had you know, without any non-Black people, or at least not having, having, or non-white people rather, but like having um, non-white people also, you know, constantly either just completely written out or, you know, having roles, you know, that really don't serve us. Um, like a lot of that, I think, I think for me, just like looking at this film, I really did appreciate that about the film is that like we we had we we're like in the same to me at least it was like holding that same kind of like respect and like honor for these for these people who are outlaws and aren't necessarily you know like you know following the rules and everything they're just doing their own thing they're trying to get they're, they're getting by at the same time they're these like really badass people like and so I really did appreciate that it's like it stands on its own um yeah and that's someone who grew up on westerns I absolutely appreciate that about the film um to James um like and I know like as filmmakers we're not supposed to like talk about our own films is like I love this about the film I do supposed to but I <laughs> we talk about our films all the time um, yeah. We're like, this was amazing. So, like, I want to know what you appreciated about about the story. For, uh, for me, you know, it's interesting with, with filmmakers, right? They, you know, growing up, I watched directors, and directors. I believe maturity is a disease. Right? It's a disease. Never grow up, right? Like, I remember. I remember <laughs> people used to go. People used to say to me, um, you know, you know, because we experience a lot of ignorance in our own race. So, growing up. I was dark-skinned and Nigerian, right, in England. So I was dark-skinned and African. So amongst Black people, that was like, a, I would think that's a beautiful thing. But amongst my own people growing up, I'm always getting fights with Black people, right? And it just made me, as opposed to giving me a complex, it made me super confident, right? It made me super, super confident. And I always praise myself, like, I'm a, I'm a Black God. And people used to say, people used to say, you know, James, self-praise is no praise. And I tell them then at school what I tell them now. Self-praise is the only praise that matters. Everything else is just noise. You have to praise yourself. You have to. When you look in the mirror, love what you love what you see. And I believe that um, for me, one, the inspiration with, with the harder they fall is because I loved Westerns. But like you guys, I never saw myself in them. I, I've been watching them since I was since I was a kid. And you would see, imagine. There is a whole genre, Unforgiven, of Clint Eastwood. We mentioned Clint Eastwood. Unforgiven is a wicked film. It's a dope film. But every single woman in that film is a prostitute. So if you are a woman of any color watching a Western, you won't see yourself portrayed in there. You will either be submissive to a weakened male um, storyline or you would not exist at all. Imagine that there's a genre where a whole genre of storytelling where women are just eradicated from. They're just eradicated from, unless they're whores or women of the night or whatever you, whatever you want to call them. And if you're a person of color in the, in the Old West, you're either subservient or they always give you um, reason. They always give us reason for us, for us being there, right? 
Django, an ex-slave. There's always some kind of reason. Uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is a wicked film. Woody Strode's in it, playing Pompey, but he can't drink in the bar. There's always some reason. Where such is not the case, as our brother, as uh, our brother Nick was saying, like like uh, one in four cowboys was black. The name cowboy was for black people. White people were called cowhands, right? Cowboy was like boy. It's what happened when black people were looking after the on the ranches and stuff. And then and then Hollywood kind of uh, misappropriated the term and the uh, the the uh, vision of of. What was the old West? So when I read that, I reimagined it or I remixed it or I re-envisioned it, revisioned it. It's a revisionist Western. It's actually not. Hollywood did that with the with the Western they talk. This to me is a more accurate portrayal of what would have happened. Black people were living amongst themselves in their in their own towns. They were they were um uh 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 self-sufficient, they had their own businesses, and they weren't under the thumb of whitey or of the man, this, this is a myth, but we are so conditioned to not only like believe that we didn't exist, we accept the portrayals of us that they, that they give us. So before we start, I would take something like uh, Django, and this is like Quentin Tarantino uh, bashing. I made, I made a short film, They Die By Dawn, before he made Django, it was released after, but I actually shot it, before he shot Django, Eric Back starring Eric Badu, Gene Carlos Pizzito, uh, Michael K. Williams, Isaiah Washington. You could see it now. It's like an hour long, a Western. All the same characters as, as The Heart of the Four. It was almost like a proof of concept to ourselves, right? But you take something like Django, where we are called the N-word 110 times in two hours. This is just unbelievable. But yet, we just take it on the... We just take it on the, on the chin. Like, is this what we... I'll continue. Calvin Candy, Leonardo DiCaprio, he gives a speech in that movie. He says, like, all black people are subservient, but I believe in the exceptional nigger. One in 10,000 are special. They're not subservient. They're not mules. They're not, they haven't got thick skulls. There's one in 10,000. Okay, that's just a speech of a horrible guy. But when Jamie Foxx, Django, was coming down the stairs in the end, he says the most heinous line of the whole film. Calvin Candy spoke a whole lot of BS, but he was right about one thing. I am that one in 10,000. The hero validates. That's like a Jewish person saying Hitler was right about one thing. It's the craziest thing. And we, and we watch it and just take it on the chin. I never complain. I contribute. I never, I never critique. I create. I had to make the harder they fall. For women, just in general, and for my people to see, I love Westerns too much to allow this narrative to, um, to continue. For me, I love everything about Harvey. I was on set every single day going, <laughs> this dish is hard. But my favorite line of the film is when uh, Rufus Buck comes off the train. Who here could drive a train? Anybody but him. <laughs> Over Barrington Levy. I used to listen to that song when I was a kid. Nick, Nick, Nick would know what I'm talking about, right? I used to listen to, I'm broader than Broadway. Yes, I'm broad, I'm broad, I'm broader than Broadway. Still, I used to go, that's horse music. That's Western music. 
man, wait till I do my Western when I grow up. Literally. So I, 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 I composed all, I composed the score and recorded all the music for the joint, right? So as I was putting it all together, putting the tissue all together, then I made the bam, 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 and I vocaled it myself. Then I contacted Barrington Levy. Look, man, I'm doing this Western. It's going to sound crazy, but just trust me. Dub and cowboy music are, dub and the Western are super closely related. We had, we had in, in Jamaica, they had an artist called Eka Mouse. Remember Eka Mouse, Nick? Eka Mouse's whole signature, he'll do this. Uh, 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 yes, yes, yes. Right? <laughs> and, and he'll do this. Uh, and he'll be singing an Ennio Morricone electric guitar. That's his signature. He'll be like, bang, 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 bang. But underneath you hear, jing, jing, jing. And it's so cinematic. It's just the two worlds have never combined before. And then the Lord gave the world James Samuel. And I will bring. Two worlds together, like He Man and Skeletor swords. You remember those? Ones? They have just combined together by the powers of Grace God. So, or, for me, like I can name, I would listen to Fella. I said, "This is cowboy music. This fits on a western." But I want to, I want to, like, I want to present all of the tropes they give you in the old west and rip them out in front of you. So Jim Beckwith, we love Jim Beckwith. Ready for a gunfight, he gets killed on three. Count down from five, five, four, three. <laughs> While all the men are shooting each other, the women, let's go, throw away the guns and have a fist fight over fella saying, let's start what we have come into the room to do. Dun, 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 dun. Like, like, and Regina, she throws a punch right So, so, uh, for me, it's, it's all, like, I, I love presenting us um, uh, an idea and tricking, tricking us into, into, or tricking our own foolishness. Like, the minute we hear color, we think of people. So, Bill Pickett goes, rob the bank where? You're Mayville. Mayville? That's a white town. So you honestly think he's talking about people. Then you get to Maysville and the whole town, the whole town is, is white, right? Uh, so I just love things. Like, I love playing with all of the, the, um, the tropes that we've come to expect and then kind of turning them, turning them on, their, on their head. And also you go through the whole film and you don't hear the N word once. Just because it's a period piece, it doesn't mean you have to call us niggas. It doesn't mean we have to be subservient. It doesn't mean, like, every time black people are in it, we always talk about, like, like white folks can have a conversation. Man, I'd love to go back in time. Black people can't have that conversation. If we had a DeLorean, if, if we knew the doc and it was, it was Back to the Future, that movie wouldn't exist. We ain't going back nowhere. You know, I'll go forward. <laughs> we, we ain't going, going back. Because of how we are... are, um, are taught to think and, and you know what we're what we're what we're just accustomed to acceptance so i'll end that soliloquy by saying one of the things that bothered me the most just growing up and hearing is like our teachers telling us that our forefathers and that our, our ancestors were slaves right and they'll tell us that our ancestors were slaves all over 
the world, they'll teach this. Like when slavery happened, now our ancestors, the people that came before us, they were slaves. And nothing could be further from the truth. No black person was ever a slave. Your ancestors criminally enslaved my ancestors. They were enslaved. They weren't slaves. You call them slaves. We didn't call ourselves slaves. We were, as far as we were concerned, we were free. You guys just criminally um, criminally enslaved us. But when you're teaching us that we were slaves and you're teaching us, then, then you're still teaching us subservience even today. So we are accustomed to hearing this stuff and then watching it on screen and just accepting it. Like, it's just, it's just, uh, 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 just a way of being and we have to continue our lives and then our kids will grow up accepting the bs imagery um they see of us so when i when i hear uh django saying i am that one in ten thousand i'm like okay well allow me to introduce you to the nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine. you know what i mean anyway so I, I love the whole thing and i could talk for hours and hours and hours but Seriously, I can I can hear you talk for hours and hours like, just about this film. I've watched, I'm going to tell you right now, I think I've watched, and I'm not exaggerating, I think I've watched it about 20 times, and I'll watch it. Oh, too. thank you, man. Yes, because it is, I, I, you seriously just like delivered an entire word. Um, and I really do appreciate it, because you can see like that kind of passion, the, the kind of passion that you have you can see throughout the film and you make many amazing points just about like what we're teaching in our schools, um, what we, what we were taught when we're, you know, being brought up and you know, what we were taught in our schools. Yeah. We were taught all of that. And, and then, and less, cause I want to say, you know, as much as, you know, we're trying to improve things, there's still many of those lessons being passed yeah. around, you know, just about us being slaved or being slaves rather than enslaved um, yeah. Also, you know, with us being not or not having contributed, you know, to society when really there are millions, millions, millions. of people, yeah. who, you know, who built up America like that was it. Yeah. It's not it's not shown in our textbook. So speaking of history, we um, I want to address another thing that I really appreciated about the film is the disclaimer at the beginning where it says while the events of the story are fictional or in the story are fictional uh these people existed so right off the bat like i saw that and i was like this is gonna be amazing and so that was it so what we're gonna do now we're going to go through they can stop telling us so they can stop telling us you know because i would argue with a lot of people especially like black people we've been frustrated that like we didn't exist then so i got all of those real characters that mm-hmm. actually did this, yeah. and I put them in one place one time. It's not a biopic, so it's not like name and likeness, but uh, or likeness, but mm-hmm. their names. I put like yeah. all of the, I kept all of the goodies, goodies, and all of the baddies, baddies, and then I kind of, kind of put them in one place so you can watch this movie and then go up and read, read up about these characters and stop telling me we didn't exist in the old west. It stops today. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, speaking of that, so I'm going to have each of our educators and our student here actually go through those characters uh, for our audience. So one moment, I'm just going to share my screen here and we're going to get into that. Uh, One second. Okay, so I'm going to, let's see. All right, here we go. Can everyone see my screen? Thumbs up, thumbs up. Okay, cool. All right, so first up, we are going to start. Trudy Smith. 
Awesome. So um, I think it's important to note that sometimes there's not a lot of information about a lot of these characters. And Trudy, um, treacherous Trudy Smith, is probably one of those that there might be even less information about. Um, almost literally could not find anything. And they um, say that there's actually probably only one known photo of uh, Trudy Smith, but also um, who this character was played by. Uh, they did a phenomenal job. And she is actually one of my favorite actresses of all time, Regina King. Um, and I do want to say now, just while we're in this space, to continue to lift up Regina King, who recently lost her son suddenly, um, you know, and tragically last month. So lifting her um, continuously after having such a high with this film and then having to go through such a low with someone she considered to be like her best friend. Um, but what is known is that she was active during the late 19th and early uh, 20th centuries and that she was from uh, the Barbary Coast in San Francisco and that she left from there uh, to go where I couldn't find that. Um, but it was known that she was well-traveled. What they do say about her in history is that she was a pickpocket um, and a thief and that she ran with another woman, her accomplice, Dolly Mickey. And they were arrested at one point and spent approximately six months in prison. And so um, there aren't really deep historical facts about this character, as there aren't many with Black people in general, especially when it comes to finding their actual birth dates and death dates, right? Those things are really, really hard to tell in place. Um, and so I think I was amazed with what was able to be done with this character, so much um, imagination. And so I think that was what I enjoyed the most about Regina King's role and how she decided to um, play that role in some of the larger, I guess, portrayal that, that comes out. And so for me, one of them is this idea of treacherous Trudy taking up space. And so I think one of my favorite moments of her is when she's on that track by herself on the horse and it's unflinching, right? As this train is approaching at full speed and is made to stop. Uh, the scholar in me and just the, the person in me, I linked this to black people and, this, and the conversations around not moving on sidewalks, right? There's a whole thing about space, place, um, and being unmovable for people that you are expected to move for, right? There was a history of black people having to move out of the way um, for white people on a sidewalk. And so for me, this became a moment of like, no, I'm standing here and you're gonna stop, right? And so <laughs> from that moment on, I think I figured what we would have with this character. Um, I think another time where she's really standing her place and taking up spaces in a conversation with Rufus after they've gone back to Redwood, and she's looking at him and she's asking, you decided to leave all of this to Wiley and not to me. <laughs> and he says, but who would have been able to control the gang like you did practically? You know, who else would they have listened to? So to know that someone was able to have that much authority as a woman in this film, I think that that was important to see and that she didn't, I don't think she saw herself as working under Rufus as much as working with Rufus for the things that they uh, were trying to do and accomplish. And so again, just this idea of taking up space and place and having some sort of authority 
um, for me, made her my favorite character. Um, and I really, really wish there was more I could find out about Treacherous Trudy. And so if anyone knows more about um, this character than I do, please send, the, send it my way. Like I am in love with this character. Every time she comes on the screen, I'm just like, she's badass. She's unrelenting. She's a boss um, and pretty much ruthless. Like she's somebody you don't want to mess with. <laughs> and so that's, that's my um, history of Trudy Smith. That was awesome. Uh, so for Rufus Buck, um, I found out that he was born, it didn't give like an exact month or exact date or anything, but it said that he was born in the late uh, 1870s. Um, so that was kind of interesting to me that it didn't really have a specific date. I'm sure there's uh, there's other dates for other characters or other people back in that time, but not for um, people like Rufus Buck. Um, and I found out that he was actually, he didn't live past 18 years old. So he was, he was really young and he was still doing all this similar stuff to in the movie. Um, but it was still a little bit different, but I like how you, how, um, you, you went about it. Um, he, he did start a gang in the, in the 1890s, um, but it didn't have, uh, Cherokee Bill and, uh, Trudy in it. Um, he was a lifelong criminal and he was hardened by, uh, uh systemic racism and, injustice um and he wanted to solve that by going about it by um uh, starting an uprising with um indians and native americans and um getting them to run white people out of oklahoma and arkansas um but he did it like really ruthlessly kind of like how rufus buck did in in the, in the movie um so yeah uh he was just really ruthless um very violent he went about in in um uh, he violently beat up and he, uh, he raped his victims, um, which is horrible. Um, and then uh, he, rumored, he was rumored to have killed a U.S. deputy marshal um, on his spree. Um, and uh, later, when he was about 18, he was sentenced to death. And then they went about the Supreme Court and they decided to give him the death penalty the same day. Um, but again, I, I wish I found more because he's actually a really interesting character and how he only he was only 18 in doing this. Um, it just it just shows what it was like back then. Um, but I would have liked to learn more about his him as a child and what have maybe um, influenced him to do this kind of stuff, because maybe he had uh, some sort of background that. Um, I don't know, kind of forced him to do this or if, um, he was influenced by his parents or someone else. Um, but yeah, that's it. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll begin to, uh, speak about, uh, give us a little bit of a historical background on, uh, Cherokee, uh, Bill. Uh, he didn't live a very uh, long life. Uh, he was hanged at 20 years old. Uh, he was mixed race, as you can see from, you can potentially see from this uh, picture here. And he was born uh, Crawford uh, Goldsby. 
uh, who supposedly killed around 16 to 13 individuals, men, I think, exclusively, and robbed people in, in, in what is uh, was referred to and still referred to to some degree as Indian uh, territory, uh, primarily Oklahoma. Uh, he was born in 1876, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, uh, who had uh, freed uh, their slaves in 1863, five months after Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. So, you know, this history uh, complicates the uh, the idea of uh, the relationship between natives and blacks, right? Uh, blacks were freed people and slaves or enslaved on uh, in Native American uh, Indian, so-called Indian territory. His father, uh, George um, Goldsby, was a light-skinned, uh, what at the time was referred to as mulatto, able to pass as white or black, and he's, uh, his dad served in the Union Army and as a Buffalo soldier. Uh, his mother uh, was half black, one quarter Cherokee, and one quarter white. After the Civil War, uh, Goldsby, um, Crawford was just Cherokee Bill, he um, went back south to Selma, but uh, he got into an altercation uh, where he was almost lynched by Confederate uh, soldiers who recognized him from a previous battle. Uh, he left Selma and uh, headed to Indian territory. This is the father, right? Uh, when he joined the 10th Cavalry in 1867 and in 1872, he met his wife who worked as a servant in the army. There were two other children in the family, Georgia, which is uh, uh, Cherokee Bill's uh, older sister and Clarence, which is his younger brother. Uh, Cherokee Bill in the middle. In 1878, in a neighboring town where they lived, black troopers and drunk white cowboys and hunters got into an argument, which led to a shootout where a hunter and a trooper was killed and three others were wounded. George, the Cherokee Bill's father, who was now a sergeant, had to leave town and basically abandon his family. Uh, he would later remarry a 16-year-old white woman and they went to Kansas and have six children. Uh, Ellen, which is the father of a mother of Cherokee Bill, sent a seven-year-old Cherokee uh, Bill to live, uh, and his older sister to live uh, with their father in Kansas when he had remarried and moved to Kansas in 1883. Uh, when Crawford was 12, uh, his father moved back to Indian Territory, and Cor Craw uh, Crawford Cherokee Bill went and lived with his mother and stepfather. He didn't get along with his stepfather and attempted to live with other family members, his sister who had gotten married, but he didn't get along with them either. And by his 18th birthday, uh, he was in trouble with the law and he went on to commit a uh, number of robberies of people, stores, trains, etc. cetera. Uh, he came together with others in a gang. Uh, eventually he was uh, killed uh, or hung actually after uh, uh, being lured by uh, lawmen to visit a woman who was of interest to him. And he was uh, captured and eventually sentenced to death after and hung after uh, two trials, uh, basically. So that's kind of a brief overview of uh, Cherokee Bill's uh, life. All right. And so just a little bit about James Pearson Beckworth, also known as Jim. He was born enslaved to a white plantation owner and an enslaved mother in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Um, uh, allegedly in 1805, there are also other accounts that he was born in 1978. So again, this mystery around the birth age uh, or the birth date um, of this uh, historical figure. Um, but he was known to be a lot of things, an African-American mountain man, 
a fur trader, explorer, trapper, scout, um, a blacksmith, and an outlaw. And so he moved to St. Louis with his father, um, allegedly. And during that time, around the age of 14, he learned how to be a blacksmith. Um, and sometime uh, up until 1824, so he was considered to be a free man. So once he left, um, once they had left uh, Virginia. And so um, he joined an expedition um, headed for mines in 1822. In 1824, he joined another expedition to explore the Rocky Mountains with William Ashley's third and most difficult fur trapping expedition, where he had to train, uh, you know, to not freeze to death or starve. Um, during this time, he also became a famous fur trapper. Um, let's see, he was known to be an Indian fighter and he was well known for telling lore about his adventures. Um, he's actually, I believe, one of the only um, folks from around this time who was able to sort of write their own history. Um, so, um, well, actually the only African-American in the West to record his life story, his book, The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth was published in 1856. Um, I think similar to Cherokee Bill, he had an interesting uh, relationship uh, with some Native Americans and Indian folks. And so they said that between 1826 and 1824, he abandoned American society and joined the Crow people. Um, it's sort of not really known about how he joined the Crow people. He, I believe he said that he was kidnapped. Others said that they sort of welcomed him, but he did learn their customs, language. He even... Uh, was married to two Crow women, one of them being the daughter of a chief. And so for six to eight years, he lived with um, a Crow band, what they called the um, Crow Indians. And so uh, according to his uh, accounts of his life, he rose in their society to the level of war chief, but there are disputes about some of the history, um, you know, that's documented by himself. They said he liked to uh, maybe over-exaggerate some of his adventures, but other uh, historians said that, you know, a lot of his accounts are true of what happened in his life. Um, there are some historic landmarks that are named after James Beckwith. I know that there's a cabin, I believe, in California that's still standing um, that actually was used as a trading post and a resident uh, in for people to stay in as they pass through. Um, he was credited with discovering the Beckworth Pass in 1850 um, that goes through the Sierra Nevada mountains and the Beckworth Trail. Um, let's see. Uh, these trails made it easier to travel and safer. Um, there was some uh, speculation about whether he was um, in a combat with about 75 Spanish posse members um, in some sort of gun battle, as well as um, stealing close to 1,200 horses um, during uh, a horse theft um, expedition. So James Beckworth got around. Um, I think I'm always amazed at how traveled a lot of uh, folks were um, during these times. Um, like his birth, uh, the exact uh, date of his death is unknown, but some say that he died in 1866 amongst his adopted people um, in a Crow village near the Bighorn River, and that they laid him to rest in Crow fashion on a tree platform, and others indicate that he may have died near Denver in 1867.
Hi, how are you? Sorry about that. <laughs> a little late on my prompt here. Uh, uh, Nat Love, I wasn't able to find a ton of information on uh, Nat Love, uh, but he was born into plantation slavery. Uh, it's important to uh, note that uh, most slaves in the United States did not work on plantations in the sense that we think of like cotton plantations. And it wasn't just cotton, it was tobacco and rice and so forth that slaves brought to the United States or cultivated in the United States. Rice cultivation was brought here by slaves, for example, uh, in uh, North, South Carolina and places like that. Uh, so some states had, you know, uh, where slaves were uh, on plantations, but the majority of slaves were hired out for a, a wide variety of jobs. Uh, and you would have a family that owned a relatively small number of slaves. That was the majority of slaves in the United States. Uh, so that's, you know, an important misconception, I think, that people have at times about slavery and how it existed here in the United States. Uh, and clearly, in some states, plantation slavery was more common than in others. Uh, he had no formal education, but he was able to learn to read and write with the help of his father, who was himself enslaved. So I find that particularly interesting that these were enslaved folks who were able to, uh, you know, become literate uh, during the time of slavery and to then extend that to his uh, child uh, without any kind of formal schooling it is, is, a, is a pretty um, uh, interesting achievement and amazing achievement. Uh, after gaining his freedom after the Civil War, he worked on a farm uh, that his father rented. Uh, even uh, after his father uh, died, he still worked on the farm. Uh, on February 10th, 1869, he left the farm and traveled west. Uh, he spent most of his adult life as a cowboy in the West from say, 1869 to 1889, and he even won a wide variety of contests at, at, at rodeos and stuff, And which gets back to my larger point of the, uh, you know, the Western imagination. We don't necessarily imagine Black cowboys and, and, and rodeos when we think of uh, the West, uh, right? Uh, he worked as a Pullman porter from 1890 to 1921. Uh, now, Pullman porters... Uh, uh, you know, in terms of uh, jobs that were available to Black men at that time, that was probably one of the best jobs that was available uh, at the time. And many of the Pullman porters became leaders in the Black community and, 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 and used that opportunity to fight for a, a Black civil rights in a variety of ways, right? In 1907, he wrote a book. Uh, some folks refer to it as a slave narrative. Uh, because he was enslaved at some point. Uh, he wrote a book entitled Life and Adventures of Nat Love, uh, better known as Deadwood Dick uh, by himself. Uh, interestingly, in this book, he chronicles his early life and his life as a cowboy, but he does not mention any kind of problematic relations between him and, and whites, which is almost impossible given the time period. So that's one of the really interesting things that's been written about uh, this book is, is his portrayal of race, even though he used you know, kind of the racialized terms at the time to refer to Mexicans or native folks and so forth. Uh, but he does not mention anything about anti-Black uh, racism and discrimination at the time in this book. Uh, and he was he became famous in part uh, because of this book. And he spent the later years of his life working as a security guard in uh, Los uh, Angeles, um, California. But not a ton of information on this fellow, but he lived uh, a rather accomplished life, I would argue, for anyone, regardless of race, at that time, uh, in terms of uh, what he was able to do.
All right, so Born Mary Fields has with so many of the other characters, because she was born enslaved, while meticulous records were kept of who was bought and sold, dates and birthdays and marriage records were not necessarily kept. So we don't have a date for when Mary Fields was born. We do know she was born in Tennessee. We know that she was born in the 1830s. That's our best guess. Um, she was born enslaved. Um, and it was interesting because as I started to research Mary Fields, um, you start to get more of the story that's left over is her legacy and her has a character. And people who knew her viewing her more has like this character, this big, tall woman, right? She was about six foot tall, about 200 pounds. Um, and it's she's become kind of more of this legend than she is an actual historical figure. The more you dig into it, you kind of start to uncover and pull back some of those layers. Um, and so as best we can tell, um, she, after the Emancipation Proclamation, um, ends up in Montana at a convent, <laughs> and this does not become a nun. She's not, she's not a Catholic nun, uh, but she worked there kind of doing odds and ends, being groundskeeper essentially, right? And doing the things that um, has the nuns quoted that the nuns couldn't do. Um, and there's a dispute over why she leaves the convent. Some sources say that she was fired. Some say she left of her own. Some say um, that the person who hired her, friends or friendly relations that she had passed away and so she had to leave. Um, but whatever the means are, she ends up leaving and she goes to Cascade, Montana. Um, and it's worth noting that in Cascade, Montana, she was the only black woman, but this is where we get into this idea of her as a person versus her as a character. Um, the baseball team in Cas Cascade, Montana, while she was live, used her as their mascot, right? And so on one hand, you have this kind of deeply rooted idea of respect, and, and here's this woman who we highly respect and we look up to, but she's the mascot for the baseball team. Um, but she goes down in history, has uh, the first black uh, mail carrier for the US Postal Service um, star roots, right? She gets a star root contract um, and she's known for carrying a revolver and a pistol and <laughs> delivering the mail through her stagecoach, which is one of her nicknames, Stagecoach Mary, um, and relentlessly protecting the mail for the citizens of Montana. Um, but then you also have other nicknames. She's called Colored Mary, she's called Black Mary, she's called N-Word Mary, right? And so never ever forgetting that she's not just a woman and that she's not a miraculous woman, she's a Black woman. Um, and so the town of Cascade, some sources say that her funeral is one of the biggest funerals that the town had ever seen. Everybody showed up and showed out. Um, but again, who are they showing up and showing out for? Was it the character and the myth or was it the true person? Um, by all accounts, she was a very generous woman. Uh, she tried to start a few different eateries um, and they failed because she gave away the food. <laughs> she, she fed anybody who couldn't afford it and she didn't collect the money. Um, and so... Stagecoach Mary is a legendary woman um, and is on the Montana history page, right? The state of Montana history page as a historical figure, but um, a lot of that is covered in this, in this character, in this mascot that's been created. Uh, so some of you might know I have a personal connection to Bass Reeves. Uh, some might say I'm his identical twin. Um, but he was born in July of 1938. He was born a slave. Um, and he was forced to um, join the Confederates in the Civil War with uh, the, his uh, slave master's son. But uh, he, he escaped and um, he fled to a Native American tribe. Um, and he um, lived there for a couple of years. 
grew up there, hung out around the Native Americans and gained their sense of culture. Um, and he learned their fighting techniques and their languages, which made him such a great uh, marshal when he joined um, in 1875. Um, he, he had so many great characteristics to be a, a successful marshal. Um, like I said, he spoke several languages. He was a very diligent detective um, and he was a very handy shooter, I might say. Um, he was known for his quick draw, um, fastest in the West, uh, so so quick and diligent with uh, just whipping them out and and uh, and, <laughs> and um, taking care of his opponents. Um, uh, he arrested over three thousand felons in his career, and he was never injured once. That surprised me a lot. Um, and he was so invested in his job and in the law that he even took in his own son for his son killing his own wife. Um, so that really shows his, um, uh, his determination and everything else. Um, and he, he held his position as the deputy U.S. Marshal for about 32 years, which is the longest anyone has ever served that title. Um, and one more thing is that he was, uh, he was noted as unviable, meaning like, he, he was never, um, he never accepted bargains or, or, um, or bribes. Um, he was always sticking with the law 100%, um, especially with his son. Um, so that was, that was pretty important. Um, and yes. And also, um, many people don't know this, but, uh, many believe that Bass Reeves was also the inspiration for the Lone Ranger, uh, the show, not, not the movie. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's pretty cool. Um, cause I mean, I personally haven't watched it cause I'm, I'm on the younger side, but, um, for many of you, you, you sure have probably seen it. So, um, I'm sure you, you didn't know that, but now that you do, you probably want to go back and watch it over again or whatever. But, um, yeah, I, like I said, he's an um, amazing character and I had so much fun researching him before and again, and making sure I got everything else again. So, yeah. Justin, thank you for so gently calling all of us old. That was that's that was very gentle. Was... <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> um, all right, so Bill Pickett. Um, my favorite thing about Bill Pickett that I found out in conducting the research is that Bill Pickett was born free and was educated, um, which I think when we are looking at historical figures, especially historical figures of color, that is not highlighted, right? We're not looking at historical figures who were educated necessarily in the traditional sense or who were even born free. Those aren't the stories that come to the forefront. Um, so I was really excited to find that out as I was reading and learning about him. Um, so to that point, Bill Pickett was born free um, in Texas. He attended primary school up until fifth grade. Um, uh, he was mixed race, um, so Native American and black. His parents, his father at least in my research, was enslaved um, and then was in Texas. Um, and he became part of the national rodeo circuit. Uh, and so Bill Pickett is known for being a cowboy in the rodeos. And he um, has gone down in history, has the kind of inventor of something called bulldogging. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with American rodeo, as I was not, um, bulldogging is essentially where you are wrestling a bull with horns to the ground by grabbing their horns. Um, and legend has it that Bill Pickett, the first time he did this in a show, 
was wrestling a steer to the ground because it was so unruly and they couldn't catch it, they couldn't rope it, et cetera. And he actually like bit <laughs> the mouth of the steer uh, with his mouth, with his teeth, he bit him. And it then that's where the name bulldogging comes from. And now it's, I, from what I can tell, it is an activity in the rodeo that people do today and it's a practice, right? Um, and so Bill Pickett is in the National Rodeo Hall of Fame. He is also in the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame and Museum of the American Cowboy in Colorado Springs. Um, he unfortunately was killed. Um, he was kicked by a horse and he died a few days later of his injuries. Um, but I think he's a fascinating historical figure just for the facts I mentioned, but also he traveled around freely around the United States, um, performing in shows and engaging in shows and engaging in all these different spaces with all sorts of different people. Um, and often sometimes was involved in code switching. So in my research, it came up that he oftentimes would kind of lean more into his Native American heritage and claim that he's not Black, he's Native American in order to be let into some rodeo spaces. And so as a biracial person, I find that very interesting. Um, how in different spaces and with different people in different groups, you identify or are identified by others has something that you may or may not be or has less than what you are. Um, and so that's kind of a life that he led. And he is on a stamp, United States Postal Service, because apparently that's my theme tonight, um, put him on a stamp. Um, and then there's some kind of dispute over whether it's actually him on the stamp or his brother. Um, but just a phenomenal figure to look up. And as I said, it was really exciting that he was born free and had an education, right? Had a primary school education. Um, and so that was Bill Pickett. Awesome. And I'll close this out with Cathay Cuffey Williams, who's played by Danielle um, Deadweiler in the film and is a part of the Nat Love gang. Um, Cathay Williams is the only documented Black woman and the first known woman to enlist in the United States Army in the 19th century. She's also the only known Black female Buffalo soldier, um, which was the nickname given to members of the African-American Cavalry regiments of the United States Army who served in the, uh, in the Western United States from 1867 to 1896. She was born um, enslaved in 1844, some documents say 1842, near Independence, Missouri, um, and she was a house girl on the Johnson Plantation in Cole County near the Missouri capital of Jefferson City, where the Civil War began. Um, and she was born to an enslaved mother and a free father. She voluntarily joined the army and concealed her gender. And so that's where we get this sort of um, non-binary uh, gendered historical figure, I believe, in the film, and was able to masquerade as a man in the army um, as they didn't conduct full medical exams at the time, so she was able to pass in that way. Um, she was later referred to as William Cathay as opposed to Cathay Williams when she was passing as a man. And so her enlistment started in November of 1866 in St. Louis, Missouri. She, was in, uh, she enlisted for a three-year term of service as William Cathay at Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis, and she was assigned to the newly formed 38th United States Infantry Regiment, um, which was one of six all-Black regiments of Buffalo soldiers created by Congress um, in August 1866. Um, she spent most of her military career um, sick, and she was hospital uh, hospitalized five times in four different hospitals over the two, two or three years that she served. Um, she was discharged in 1866. Um, 
after needing to be hospitalized and the post-surgeon found out that she was a woman and she was discharged. Unfortunately, her accounts um, detail how the men treated her poorly after finding out she was a woman. And so someone might ask, why would you want to join the army at that time as a woman? And so, um, you know, I think that the lore of independence um, you know, at, that's been reported for young female and unmarried former enslaved persons, you know, there weren't a lot of options and you could make a better living being in the army. So I believe that's why she wanted to um, pass as a male and be enlisted. She quoted as saying, I wanted to make my own living and not be dependent on relations or friends. And so again, supporting the reasons for wanting to enlist. Um, at the end of it, um, poor health overwhelmed Williams after serving in the military, uh, toe amputations from diabetes, um, deafness, and some other illnesses forced her to apply for military disability pension, but a doctor concluded that she didn't qualify, not because she was undeserving, but because she opposed as a man. Accounts say that she died in 1893, shortly after being denied disability compensation, um, and that's my historical fact on Cathay Cuffey Williams. Hey, thank you all. Um, that was an amazing, um, that was, those were amazing lessons, uh, rather about each and every one of them. And I know when I go back and watch the film, I'm definitely gonna have that, all of those like in the back of my head. Um, uh, so yeah, thank you for that. Um, I hope you all learned a lot um, with that, as I'm sure I, I know I did. Um, now with uh, James, I wanted to pose you a question as well, um, you know, given all these characters and everything. What was the, I guess, like, what was the reasoning behind choosing these specific characters, these like figures? Um, one, firstly, that was amazing listening to all you guys um, speak about cat. This is a really amazing thing. Imagine like what I would have been doing right now. I would have been like just literally doing something that wasn't this. I could have been doing this instead of that something. So this is awesome. Uh, the reason I chose these specific characters, um, when I, when I, you know, there's such a wealth of, of, there was a version of the script where I had both Trudy Smith and Dolly Mickey in it, right? So, but when I go back to the Old West and I'm going to bring in more folks like Ism Dark, there's so many more uh, people, you know, in the, in the Old West. For the story I wanted to tell, obviously these guys didn't know each other. They didn't, didn't you know, um, uh, they didn't occupy the same space. So it was a fictional story. But one, I love, um, I love Nat Love, right? The character Nat Love. This guy wrote his own, autobiography like as far as he was concerned he's such a g i'm writing my story myself right and you know when you you know when you're telling your own story you start embellishing you start embellishing stuff like so i don't know what he embellished and what he didn't but it's it's just such a uh uh he took such a g stance on his own life i was like okay he's my protagonist also his name nat love the story i wanted to tell because the story of the Hardaway Fall has been going on in all communities since the beginning of, beginning of time, but it, it's prevalent in the black community. You know, like the violence, the never ending cycle of violence um, we see. I needed to tell a story where, where um, uh, two people are literally the same person doing the exact same thing. And it's just a, a cyclical loop, never ending um, loop, this guy, 
had his parents killed, so he's chasing the killer of his parents. Finds the killer of his parents, and the guy killed his parents because his parents killed his parents. Like, Rufus Buck's dad, if you watch it again, and Rufus Buck's dad, Theodore Love, played by Michael Beach, he says, we'll take the South Side, please leave my family out of this. And when you watch the end, you think, how audacious. That's when Rufus Buck, when this is my family, that's when Rufus Buck pulls the, lifts up the guns. My family, the nervous dude, you killed my mum and killed my father. The idea of what a father's supposed to, supposed to be. So, and the name Love, like, okay, Matt Love is my, is my protagonist. The Rufus Buck, whatever his, you know, they would, they would convict us and then throw all other crimes on what it is we actually did. They do that today. They did that. Um, yes, it's been going on since the beginning of time. But whatever his his crimes were, he wrote a poem in prison. He was a man that just was not. Um, he was a kid that just wasn't having it. And and he had a gang. So like the Rufus Buck gang. There's my protagonist. I want a marshal to be chasing him. Okay, Marshal Bass Bass Reeves. There's there's the marshal. Bill, I need someone trustworthy to run with Nat Love. Bill Pickett, the bulldog, the man that invented bulldogging, the, the rodeo, G. Uh, then I need, then I need like a quick draw, right? I need a quick draw. Mm, I love the name Jim Beckworth. Beckworth, Beckworth, Beckworth. And these people were like, were, uh, unlike a lot of people, the fact that these people, there was pictures of them even, to go and post for pictures, a big thing. Like, these people took stock in how they looked, how they were presented, and how they saw themselves. And the, and the picture of Jim Beckwith, um, he looks like a person that is really image conscious. All of them do, but Jim, the way his hair is, James B. Beckwith. That's my, that's my, that's my quick draw. That's my gunslinger. Cherokee Bill was such a badass in real life. When he was going to the in on the gallows, they said to him, "Any last words?" He said. I came here to die, not make a speech. Who were these gangsters? How could you teach me, or how could you teach me about Calamity Jane, but you never teach me about Stagecoach Mary, who got in gunfights with white cowboys, but you'll teach me about Calamity Jane. You'll teach me about um, Billy the Kid, but not teach me about uh, Cherokee Bill. I used to love that musical, Calamity Jane, when I was a kid. Uh, I know all the words to the Windy City. I just got back from the Windy City. Windy City is mighty pretty, but they ain't got what we got. No siree. They got shacks up seven stories. Never need any more than but steps from our doorway. We got them for free. They got those minstrel shows, party lady with the big chapel, private lawns, public bars, for the sake of civic virtues. They've got fountain there that squirt you. I just got back, I got a point. I just got back from the Windy City. The Windy City is mighty pretty, but they got what we got. I'm telling you, boy, we got more style than that. We're sitting in all of Illinois. Okay, how come I know all the words to Doris Day's Windy City while she's playing Calamity Jane, but I've never heard of Nat Love. This is criminal. Okay, so I'll grab like all the ones that kind of spoke to me. Gertrude Smith. I love the fact that Gertrude Smith was a pickpocket. You read the only information about her is she was a pickpocket who wouldn't stop at murder to get shit. Okay, okay, that means you're a murderer who will sometimes pickpocket. <laughs> Not a pickpocket who wouldn't stop at murder. I'm like, you're a murderer. Murderer comes before pickpocketing in the character description. 
Uh, and that always made me, uh, civic, as uh, sadistic as it is, always made me kind of laugh. Like, these people are gangsters, right? And then they just disappear. Um, or we never kept records. Um, so they kind of, they all, when you look at them, speak to who they kind of played in the movie and then why I, I pulled them in. Gertrude Smith and these larger-than-life characters. I needed kind of larger-than-life actors um, uh, to play them. And that was my... That was my um, uh, main inspiration for, for drawing those those particular ones for this particular um, story. You know what I mean? No, that is, no, that is fantastic. Um, thank you for that. Uh, the So as far as like pulling then those actors to play, um, those specific characters then, um, did you, like, so how much involvement did you have with casting? Or like, like were you the one basically making the casting decision or was that, like the responsibility. I'll, I'll make the casting decision. Like I'm, I'm the writer, director, and composer, producer of the of the movie. But my casting um, uh, director was a was an absolute G. There was three people that I didn't already have, but I or, or two people I already had. Um, uh, Idris Elba, who's my brother from for years, right? Idris Elba was always Rufus Buck. Um, and I cast Jonathan Majors before I'd seen anything he was in. I saw an interview of his, and I knew that he was my guy for Nat Love. And I wanted Regina King. So I think before we even got to casting, um, we contacted Regina's agent, Laurie Bartlett, who's now my good friend. We call her the Oracle. And she read the script. It, I don't even know that the film was with Netflix then. She read the script and was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm gonna get this in front of Regina and and um and you know I'll get you and Regina, I'll get you and Regina on the on the phone. I always tell the story. And it took a while to get Regina on the phone. She was shooting the watchman, and it took a while. I remember like it took like a good couple of weeks. But Laurie was on it, and I've never had an agent help me so much, right? Uh, and she was just on it. No, I'm gonna make this work. Like James, I believe in you, I believe in you. Considering I hadn't directed a uh, film before, Laurie, she just saw the future. And she got me and Regina on the phone. And, and I always say, like, you have 10, maybe 15 seconds to make a first impression, right? And then, and then minds, are, minds are made up from the way you say hello. And Regina got on, we, we organized a, uh, was it a FaceTime or a Skype or something? It wasn't a Zoom, because Zoom kind of became prevalent during lockdown. I think it was a Skype. Um, and we got on a, we got on a Skype, and the, and the first thing, I said, as soon as I saw her face, I was like, peace to the black queen, Regina King, what's cracking? And that was it, we were cooking, we were cooking from there. I was telling her like, look, and then I grabbed the guitar and I was like, yeah, look, so we're gonna, and then here's how the music goes. And then and I just gave her the full, all the full um, sound by stuff. Like, I was like, there's no way I'm missing the opportunity to garner Regina King as Gertrude Smith, as like the, baddest chick you've ever seen in the old west who's doper than all the men right okay well if, if that's the statement that's what you're you're aiming this lady stops the train by just sitting on a horse okay so i need i need the person i could pull that off regina king you do not question regina king sitting on my horse stopping that train it's regina king the train better stop you know what I'm the train regina, regina the king yes <laughs> regina the king Right, the train better stop. So, so uh, when I put down the phone, when I put down the phone, I was confident. I was like, 
I think she's going to do it. I think she's going to do the film because she smiled like, okay, okay, okay. I was like, I think she's going to do it. And then, and then, so that was buddy. And then um, Victoria Thomas, our casting director, she was amazing. She found me like Danielle Deadweiler who played Cuffy. Um, she found all like pretty much uh, uh, Eddie Gifegi was already a close friend of mine, but she found like a, a slew of, of um, the actors, brought Dion Cole to my to my attention, you know, I'm I'm English, so I didn't see or I've seen his his the stand up um, his stand up special, but I haven't seen like the all other stuff that like I didn't watch Blackish and see Dion Cole. I never saw the uh, the um, Old Spice commercials, right? I never saw anything that would put me off him playing a serious character. All I know is Dion Cole. I'm, I think about the film and the story. When I spoke to that guy, I just know that his voice is awesome, like. Rufus Buck. Like, mm. And I was imagining gold teeth in his mouth and him fighting. Is that what you want? I ain't want to disappoint you. Him talking to the camera. Fazio, I'm a sinister mark too. Me pulling the camera back and the way he can, like, that little bit there is comedy, but the way he can keep it straight, but he understands the timing of it and what to tell the audience when he's looking in the camera, all of those things. Um, and that came, that came from... Um, uh, casting from Victoria Thomas, her and I were just running, running, um, you know, like running point on it. So it was just a really, uh, it was a really awesome thing. You know, when you're making a film, you're kind of, you're kind of doing your your own thing. I, I always say, like, you remember I was saying, maturity is a disease, and obey your crazy. No matter what you're doing, obey your crazy. Those thoughts are in you; they come to you for a reason. But how crazy? The thought is like the stage coach Mary comes on stage, she sings. One, get that horse in a wagon. Two, I call that song the Jim Crow Count. So I'll just be cooking all of that stuff up. That's Idris's Idris on the background vocals. I was recording that in the in the house in the evenings. Like, okay, tomorrow I got to record the song. One, get that horse in a wagon. Two, get that rain in. And then listen to the words. Three, uh, what's it say? One, get that horse in a wagon. Two, get that in Three. Get that man's rifle. Four, for them that's dead on arrival. Five, them that pray, see heaven. Six, them that don't, see devil. Seven, separate, separate but equal. Right, the Jim Crow laws. But equal. Eight, I say them that slay my people. Nine, so break them chains and shackles. Ten, come again. So it's just all of those, all of those things. But you need the the cast that could, that could, um, uh, you need the cast that can pull it off. I need these larger than life um, characters. And I was kind of fortunate with the cast and so So um, that was kind of like the process, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. No, thank you for taking us through that. Because this cast, I like when I saw the trailer, I was like, whoever did the casting, whether that was the director, whether that's the combination of people, I was just like, they got, they nailed it. Like as yeah. Mona was saying, the cast is Chef kiss, yeah. chef kiss, so that, yeah. When they first, when they first uh, said they had the trailer, we were working with this team, um, Dana and, and Narelle. Like, if you guys do another one of these, I'll join it. I'll bring Dana and Narelle on the two, like, my sisters. Um, that was dealing with all the marketing. <laughs> they are geniuses. I'm telling yeah. you, they are geniuses. And they had, they had the, uh, the trailer, right? The, the trailer ready, the first teaser. And I was on a, I was on a call with them, on FaceTime with them, with James Lasseter. Will Smith's partner in one of the this movie. And he was like, okay, so, so you guys got the trailer? Okay, well, sit with it. 
make your notes, add your notes, and then send it to us in a few days. I was like, what? Send it to us, in, send it to us. Send it to us in a few days. I've been waiting for this to see this trailer for 10 years. Send it to me now. Send it to me right now. She sent it to me, JL, and Jay-Z, right? And when I saw that teaser the first time, remember this, we saw this teaser. If it came out in, in late May, we saw it in the beginning of January, right? I watched that teaser like 8,000 times to the point where Hove called me, right? Uh, Jay called me and he was like, yo, yo, you got the teaser? I was like, yeah, you seen it. He was like, are you crying right now? I was like, the only notes I have is the font of my name. He was with, he was with uh, Swiss. I think he was in the house with Swiss, with Swiss Beats. And it was like, I think it was like 9 p.m. And they had the trailer on repeat to like 2 a.m. I knew we had a good trailer when Jigga's watching it a hundred times. And I'm watching it a hundred times. I watched that trailer so much, Nick, right? I fell asleep with my contact lenses in and I woke up and my eyes were just, I fell asleep like watching the trailer like, <sighs> I woke up in the morning, like hours later, my eyes were like, oh, the trailer was that good. I can't wait to unleash the dish on the public. You know what I mean? You had like fella, Barrington Levy, that is the hardest teaser of life, of life. So, um, so yeah, the whole, I mean, the whole uh, film was was super fun to, to, even though shooting it, we shot it in the eye of, the eye of COVID, which is mm. a, a crazy thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we were going to, we were, we were gearing up to shoot the movie. We were a day before filming, the day before filming, mm-hmm. and um, we got shut down with COVID. And then, and then, and no one had COVID in the world, just Tom Hanks. And then it was announced Idris Elba on my set came down with, with COVID. So then we were all quarantined and we didn't know what this thing was. And then we shut down for five months. Uh, but me and Jonathan stayed in, um, stayed in New Mexico and we were, um, we were still just working on the, working on the film. Then we got back up and, um, and went to town. But when we got back up, then I was told, okay, there's this new disease out. So now your debut movie, you have to direct with mask, goggles, a face shield, and you can't go closer than six feet to any actor. This is madness, right? So this is my debut movie. At this point, I was so gung-ho in I'm doing this movie. I was like, look, you just tell me what the parameters are. And watch me bring us all a classic. Just tell me what the parameters are. Just, just give me the rules. I can't stand closer than six feet. Okay, I'm gonna break them anyway. Just give me the rules. I can't stand close to six feet. Mask, goggles, face shield. We had a lady that was walking around with a stick, a six feet stick, keeping everyone away, measuring stick. Six feet, six feet. So I would have, I would have like my lookouts on the, on the set, right? And then we call them 5 0, these, these six feet people. It's like police, right? They're like, yo, Jay, 5 0, 5 0. So I'll put my mask back on. <laughs> And goggles, but before then, my mask would be off. We'll be eating, scuffing, and, and we just turn everything into the everything into the um, hood and just making it. I always say, like the making of the film, the film we make is for the public, but the making of the film is for us. So you have to make sure you have an amazing time making. So I was blasting music, jamming on 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 set. It was it was an awesome uh, it was an awesome thing. Oh my gosh. So see, you you say like obey you're crazy. And I'm sitting here. So like as another filmmaker, 
like on the projects that we worked on and stuff like that. None of that, by the way, like sounds crazy to me. I'm like, no, because you got to get the film done. You got to get it done. You yeah. have a vision and you're just yeah. to like, you know, do whatever is necessary, you know, to get this yeah. moving. Because you're like, you want, yeah. you want people to see it. You're like, yes, you want the public to see it, obviously, but you're you're making the film for you. You want to share that, yeah. like your your heart, like with, you know, with absolutely. And so like, as far as like, again, like just keeping on track, you know, with things, you know, even if it's just like a little thing here, a little thing there, it's still continuing. So I, do, I, yeah. Man. And you have, you have things that, you know, you find that when you're, when you're doing like a, a big project that's going to be released, you'll have these ideas with anything. It could be a book, anything, a song. If you do not explore those ideas, they'll haunt you till the day, every time you watch it. So for instance, the blue lady, right? And mm. a couple of people question me, like, why the blue lady? Don't question me. The blue lady's there for, for a reason. I mean, I'll explain it in my own time, but I need this lady blue. She's blue and she comes in and she she dances. And the reason, and 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 what she actually signifies, the blue lady, is Alice Smith is singing a song called, uh, and I love Alice Smith, she's singing a song called Wednesday's Child, right? And Wednesday's Child, let me just pull this up quickly in my in my notes. Because when I write a song, I kind of like forget the words afterwards. Unlike uh Jay-Z, who this tissue is just all in his in his in his head. It's the craziest thing, right? Alice Smith, she sings a song. When Stage Church Mary walks into the saloon, Alice Smith sings uh, a song called Wednesday's Child. It goes, Monday's child is ever smiling. Tuesday's child will play in sun. Wednesday comes with a gun. Thursday tears have just begun. Friday ships are filled with crying. Then she goes, Monday seems so far away now. Tuesday was not bad at all. Like the stuff we used to complain about and, and argue about in Africa before them ships came seems so irrelevant now. Wednesday came with a flame. Thursday never be the same. Friday ships are not returning. Monday's child is torn asunder. Tuesday's child is thrown in chains. Wednesday's child used to smile. Thursday's tears are now and now. Friday's child is ever burning. That's what happened when we went on that on that ship. That's what Alice Smith is singing. The blue lady, the blue signifies the sea, the middle passage that we all um, went on. And her dance is hope. No matter what you put us through, we still come with song, whether it's gospel, we still come out with movement. We still come out with hope and perseverance through all the tears, the pain and the anguish that you, that you give us. That's why I need the blue lady. Now, don't question me and paint her blue. My point, my point is, my point is, you have to obey your crazy when you're when you're um, when you're creating art. But it's actually sane to it. And when it's when it's done, it's a cohesive, um, it's a cohesive piece, and and everything's just accepted as if it was always there. But on route to it being there, you know, your ideas for the most part would seem. Um, uh, your ideas, your your ideas for the most part would seem um, unconventional to say the least. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, all I know, like me and other creatives, I know for sure. Like, yeah, the ideas always sound crazy, but you know, it's not crazy to you because you have a vision. You want to see it. Yeah. So, oh yeah, exactly. For sure, for sure. Exactly. Um, okay. I'm gonna give my charger for this for this um, iPad. I'm gonna give my charger. I don't want it to die. 
No worries. Yeah. So no, while you are doing that, um, mm -hmm. so I wanted to uh, give our panelists a chance to talk through um, some of like the, the the salient. I think we've already like gone through some of the salient themes, unless um, any of our panelists had any more that they wanted to bring up. Um, okay. Because otherwise, I have um, another. So I have another question for our panelists as well. Um, in regards to us coming to the end of Black History Month, and but that doesn't obviously mean that we stop talking about Black history, especially in our classrooms. Um, so with some states enacting laws uh, that prohibit teaching about systemic racism, do you think, and I can pose this to James, um, and I can pose it to, I'll pose it to Deb first while James looks for his charger, um, but do you think that as filmmakers, um, or as creatives um, or in other artists have an obligation to inform the general public? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, in short answer, yeah. Uh, there's just, I mean, film filmmakers have changed a lot of ways in how people are represented, how, I mean, growing up, like watching films, like a lot of stuff, you know, that I've learned um, on various things came from like just watching a film <laughs> and just like seeing something on the TV. And so I think media just has such a great impact on people that it's just, it's obvious that, you know, they, there's a certain responsibility to that and how we, how we show people in our, in films. So, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, and going off of that, so, I, cause I know, I know the argument that I always, or not argument, more like respective debate, like with people just about whether or not we filmmakers should be making these stories because number one, um, it's profiting off of black trauma, right? Because like a lot of what people tend to show of black history is of the trauma. And so like the thought that filmmakers would show that but then you know if it's especially if it's coming from a non-black filmmaker they're 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 but essentially profiting off of our stories i however appreciate filmmakers who will teach us something uh especially like in some sort of an entertainment like james when you were talking about so when you were talking about regina king and you were talking about um her film and watchmen in that particular tv series i didn't know there, there was quite a bit that I didn't know um, in that story. Like I was learning about the Tulsa, I think I had already learned about the, the, the Tulsa massacre, um, but just going through that, that was more of a history lesson for me. Um, I think also another, uh, another uh, TV series featuring another cast member, so Jonathan Majors in, um, you know, in the country, right? They're, they're talking about sundown town. I didn't know what a sundown town is. If you don't know what that is, by the way, in our audience, um, definitely Google that, look that up. I didn't know about that. There's quite a few things, even with it being like, it being entertainment, you know, it's also, it's also learning. And so because I wasn't learning those kinds of things in, and you can also talk about the Netflix original series, Self Made, we are talking about Madam C.J. Walker, right? Like this self-made, you know, black millionaire, a black female like millionaire like we did not learn about her at all and so like I'm not only being entertained but I'm also being taught something that I wasn't taught in school so I and so James 
before you got back on, so we were discussing, um, you know, with us not being taught this in classrooms, do you think that it is our responsibility or our obligation to share these stories um, and inform the general public through our craft? Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, on one hand, look, like, as a filmmaker, I want to go to space. I want to do some close encounters of third kind, essentially, to explore some, like, I'm a storyteller, right? So I want to tell tell stories and I'll continue to tell stories, but, you know, the film is such a huge canvas, right? You can you can entertain and still make a make a statement, right? You can still, it can still be learned in the same breath. You know, you have different types of filmmakers and different types, you know, sometimes you want to listen to Public Enemy, other times you want to listen to, to Young Thug. Sometimes you want to listen to, to, Jay-Z, other times you want to listen to Kodak Black. Like you have the same goes with with um with storytelling. I think we should have a broad um a broad canvas of, of storytellers, right? You know, it's interesting because I only want you know let's call it let's call them lessons in, in entertainment by filmmaker filmmakers. Um with the skills equipped with the skill sets, tell me those. Uh, if you, if you're a bad filmmaker, if you if you're not like, you know, if you're not like that great a filmmaker, I would rather you stay away from. Don't be making some trash movie and teaching me, so people would think that those kind of stories are are, are trash. I don't believe everyone has to, everyone has to do it, but I do think that it's such a um, a. You 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 know you're you're having someone sit down and watch and listen for two hours. It'll be good if you can give them give them a little a little something um, too. I don't necessarily believe that every filmmaker um, um, has to do. I don't believe every film you do has to has to um, be a teachable moment. Because, like I said, I love science fiction, um, but I do believe that it's such a it's such a um, big um can is such a broad canvas you're you're painting this picture on it'll be good to to um let your audience walk away um with something now having said that not every story in a period piece has to be traumatic you know what i mean like for me the harder they fall as much as we deal with um the violence that happens in in our community. For me, the Hardway Falls is a superhero movie. Them dudes are superheroes. They were real life <laughs> superheroes. Nat Love is a G. And you would hear Dennis Brown singing Promised Land bom, 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 as they're as they're riding. I feel good watching the, the Hardway Fall. Like like the end is a really like when Idris and Jonathan have that total force of a of a of a scene acting um uh to each other and, and you know as a filmmaker I don't let Nat Love and Rufus Buck, if you watch the film again, I do not let them share the frame once. They never share the frame, right? And in the end scene, and the, and the only time you kind of see them share the frame is in that shot that people think is CGI. It's not CGI, it's a practical shot of the camera right at the back of the mansion going right through. Uh, we built that mansion and built oh this cable shot no. right <laughs> The only thing that's, the only thing that we put in there and we put the removable window. The only thing we put in there is the window. 
so the camera could go through the window. The whole, it's a practical shot, right? And that's the only time you see them kind of share the frame, but it shows how far they are apart, right? They, the only, then when they share it, when they actually share the frame in the film is when Rufus Buck says the words and uh, son, on the word son, he walks into a two shot. Before then, I shoot Rufus Buck static and I shoot Nat Love um, uh, steady cam. And as the information gets worse and worse, I shoot him handheld. So it's all kind of wobbly. Rufus Buck is static and a wife and a son. So it's, it's, the, it's um, those kind of things that, okay, that's a really deep um, and, and emotional scene and traumatic. You're dealing with a lot of trauma there, like family trauma, but the film is not about black trauma, right? I don't, I don't um, necessarily um, uh, uh, want to tell those stories as a filmmaker, but I do believe they should be told. I believe, I, I believe that, that, um, that we should have the, the whole, uh, World War II is actually a genre in cinema. Mm -hmm. It's a genre of film. World War, you can have a World War II shelf, and it's just or World War II, it's a genre. So, so we should tell um, all, of our, all of our stories, but all of our stories aren't trauma. We have some magnificent, um, some magnificent tales, you know what I mean? And all of them don't have to deal with white people living in the, uh, you know, when I wrote, when I wrote the scene, when I, when I handed in the script, there was a, a producer, a white producer, and he, he said, um, you know, James, how do they, um, how do they uh, get away with killing all those people on the train? <laughs> it was an odd question. To me, it was a bizarre question. <laughs> I said, because I wrote, they get away. <laughs> he went, he said, he said, and this is a real I promise you this is a real conversation he went but how I said with final draft but yeah but how I mean look if you turn on you have to download final draft you turn it on and you just write and then you press enter and full stop and they get away with it but how I mean just say what you want to say how do they get away with killing all those white people on the train the same way white people have got away with killing black people on trains, planes, and automobiles since the beginning of, of Hollywood. In this movie, they get away, and those guys are rapists and murderers. And in the story, it's sanctioned by the government. What is your beef? People are so just not used to it. They actually, yeah, but they can't get away with it. Yes, they can. In my movie, they can. Like, they're not white. They're murderers and they're monsters, those guys. on train. They're bad soldiers. It's not like black people killing white folks. If that's what you get from that from that scene, you've missed the whole point of the of the uh, of the film. Another thing I'd like to point out, just because I'm giving you all of these gems, is you know it's interesting because I watch this movie right, and I I say to myself, it's controversial what I'm about to say. The Rufus Buck gang in this movie are goodies. They don't do anything bad in the movie. The only bad thing they do in that film, only one bad, is kill that guy in the in the town. That's the only bad thing they do in the movie. They kill the guy guy in the town. Whereas, and I love exploring these things, right? And almost like not playing tricks, but almost like making us question why we regard certain people as goodies and why we regard other people as baddies. The Nat Love Gang, as soon as you meet, as soon as you meet them, they're murdering people in cold blood. They're murdering people in cold blood. They 
there was no internet those days. There was no FaceTime. That could have been the most friendliest bank robbery in the history of bank robberies, the Crimson Hood gang. Yeah. They robbed the bank. Okay, that could have been a really, really non-violent bank robbery. But because they were in Crimson Hoods, it's totally fine for them to be picked off in cold blood and the entire crew, bar one, murdered. Why are you robbing them? Nat Lovett and this crew are stomped. That's a really bad thing, thing to do. But we regard the Rufus Buck gang as the baddies. It's a really crazy thing, but if you look at it, Jonathan always says it's about fear, like an even and an even playing field, which is an inter- interesting thing. You know, um, we talk about it the whole time, like how it's going to be perceived that the Rufus Buck gang are baddies, which I designed it to be perceived that way. But they're actually doing a... He's trying to do a good thing for his town. He tells Wiley Esco, a man like you will be have us living in subservience till the end of our days, just so you can buy a big flashy house and those goddamn gold teeth. Rufus right. wants to do something for his for his people. Yeah. But it's not loving them, it's just robbing yeah. people. You know, this, if, this if I could if I could add to that real quick, uh, um, part of my notes when I watch the uh, docu- uh, documentary, no, <laughs> the movie, is you know Rufus is trying to build a promised land, right? And then you play the promised land, right? And so uh, this is a metaphor for the goals I would argue for most social movements of the African diaspora, right? Which may in part I thought explain why there was so much reggae music in the film. Uh, even though it's a film about the American West, because so much of reggae music is about the history of slavery, social mm-hmm. death, emancipation, and the continued struggle to create uh, the promised land free from anti-Blackness and neo-colonial relationships with the former enslavers and colonizers. Exactly, brother. Exactly. And, and for me, I wanted to show that, like, melodically, we're one. We're one uh, uh, People and you know if if you hear uh, if you I hope I'm not taking up too much time when I'm talking to you like (laughs) we're 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 past we're past time but we also wanted to just be able to like because you're here and you know we wanted to obviously talk talk about the film and everything I'm I'm like loving it so yeah I'll just well I'll I'll just say with regards to the to the to the music if you look at like a like um. Uh, old, old, well, if you look at like old westerns, I'll always like genreify westerns guys by the type of music there are beneath those westerns. So if you go back, right, to the old black and white days, you'll hear like, you'll hear like the, 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 this kind of, this kind of a, uh, 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 it'll be like, her name was Jackie riding up the hill on a you hear that kind of music, right? And if you go, if you go uh, on, the, the the music became kind of like grander and more orchestral, right up to um, Elmer Elmer Bernstein's um, uh, uh, score for Magnificent Seven. Then it went to Italy with Sergio Leone and, and Ennio Morricone, and it'd be like um, ding 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 ding. But none of these themes and none of this music was Western cowboy music. Billy the Kid never heard, even heard probably of electricity, let alone heard of the electric guitar. There was no song 
in in the days when when Jesse James was riding around town going, his name was Jesse, he riding up the hill. That wasn't the music they were listening to. So Westerns always had modern music, right, over them. They just had the music of the day that Hollywood would then place over the over the um the um the film. So for me, making that um it was about giving this movie its own signature. I wanted people to watch, I wanted people to watch this movie and do this. Like the grimace in certain scenes, like when they rob the train, you hear that track. And then the music goes up. What is Cherokee Bill's talking? And that comes from every black person knows, knows this, right? On a, like a Saturday night, on a Saturday night, you and your crew will be walking down the street looking for a party that you're not invited to, right? And you get one person, you get one person who's the dedicated uh, uh, sound, we call them sound systems, right, Nick? But who's a dedicated speaker hearer, bass hearer. One person who's a self-dedicated speaker hearer. What? So you all be walking down the road. You know there's a party in the area somewhere. Someone heard a girl say, we're going to do, you know somebody, you don't know where the person lives, right? And you're walking, everyone's talking. And then you hear this, what? Someone says, shut up, shut up, shush. Everyone shut up. And from afar, you hear this. And they go, it's almost like they say, north. And everyone gets, and the thing gets louder and louder. And when you get this, like, hey, green goes out, and then now you have to try and wangle your way into the Three of you are going to get rejected. One of you is probably going to get arrested with a fight, and one of you is going to sneak in. Hopefully, I'm, I was usually the one. So when I was scoring the movie, when I was putting together the score, I wanted to bring back all of those feelings, right? The feeling of, of um, tension or excitement when you hear... <laughs> So when, Re when Regina King, Trudy Smith goes, let them see your face, and they pull down their mask, you hear, when he says, my name's Cherokee, oh, you must be the hero, great spirit, why does they, why does they always have to be one? Meanwhile, but the music is just about to say, North! So when he pulls out the when the guy swings, he pulls out the knife. And so you bring, so I use that motif as they're, as they're walking down the train to the, the end goal, which we think is a robbery, but it's actually a man, Rufus Buck. I play with the frequency of uh, uh, the music, which is uh, me going, going like, like north, Looking for the looking for our gold, which was the party. They're looking for their gold, which is Rufus Buck. But it's just that. So just all of those, um, all of those things uh, come to mind. Which is why uh, I'm, I always, you know, let people know for when you're when you're composing music for the composer usually comes on late, right? The composer comes on late. They come on a lot of times in post-production. You shot the movie, then you play to the composer. That's too late. The composer should come on when the director knows what script he's making because it will help your shot composition, your shot list, your choreography of the camera, if you know your motifs, which is why when a scene ends in the film, you and I go into the... When a score ends in a film, I have, like, Nat Love a couple of times whistling the score, right? He's whistling the score. Like, when... when uh, 
when uh, uh, they write, write to Rock Bank, you hear Lauren Hill. When the music stops, Matt Love's going. I can only do that if I know what the music is before I shot the film. Like you can have so much more, you have so much more leeway to create when you um, when you when the composer's on early. In this case, I was the composer, so I would be knowing all the all the joints. Like, to, you know what I mean? If that yeah. makes any sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. You can, if you know that ahead of time, you can play with the, you know, the editing, and so you can yeah. play to that. Yeah. You know that, yeah. you know that ahead of time. Yeah. You know the editing, and it all just meshes together. Yeah, um, I'll pl- I'll be playing music on set. Uh, uh, most of the times, like uh, sometimes I'll play the um, uh, the score, the score. Other times I'll just be playing playing songs. We'll be in between, we'll be in between takes. I'll conclude by saying we'll be in between takes, and I'll look around. I'll be like, okay, I'm going in. I'll show you something. Later. Let's just wait. Let's just. This is on set when when. Uh, Trudy Smith goes to Nat Love's uh, so we had turnaround. I was like, how long turnaround we got? It's like an hour. An hour? Everyone hit the streets. So I had a, I had a, I had a big speak, like Tannoy's set around, around Redwood. We shot everything on location. No studio, no sets. And I had like a big speaker in my in my video village, like, which is portable. And I'll just do this while we're on set. This is Regina. Oh my God. <laughs> That's me in the background. I love that. All the synergy. <laughs> no, everyone just starts dance back. Oh background. <laughs> it's no big deal. Like, so we'll have, I'll be having like proper sound clashes and, and like, just on set, like the making of the film is, is for us. And I think that bleeds into, into what you see and how much fun um, we were having. You want to remind people that, that, um, that you're actually making history. I can't <laughs> wait till you guys hear, till we announce and you guys hear about the next film that I'm making. Yes, we cannot. Oh, it's, it's, if you think I made trouble with the holiday fall, clutch the pearls on the next one. Yes. <laughs> there will be on that announcement, and I give a clue. I give a huge. This is the first person people I'm telling this. Great. I give awesome. a huge clue. A huge clue in the holiday fall of the next film I'm doing. A huge clue. It's huge. Does it have to do with the ending? That ending? Because I need answers, man. Right. I <laughs> need answers. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but as soon as, as soon as it's announced, as soon as it's announced, like uh you guys are gonna love it, man. I think I think um I think everyone on this on this literally everyone's gonna be as soon as it's announced, I personally believe everyone's going to be talking about this decision. And then you find out what it actually is. Yeah. It's one of those ones. Like, we've never had one of these. We, in, take it from me, right? I have seen a sibilance of a black cowboy before in a film. Whether I've been pleased with the portrayal, but, you know, back in the preacher, 
boss. There's been um, um, scatterings of, of like a black cowboy and black cowboys. The next film I'm shooting, we have never seen any of this imagery in cinema before, ever. Literally ever. I don't know one person that watches more films than me, right? We've never seen any sibilance of this kind of uh, imagery ever. And oh, it's going to be a doozy. Yes, well, as other people are saying in the as people are saying in the chat, you have to come. We have to have you back. You have to come back. Um, seriously, we've absolutely one hundred percent, like a hundred, a thousand percent, like have enjoyed this conversation, this dialogue. Um, you sharing your love of the film and like your love of film and also just everything that went into this brilliant, incredible story. Um, and so, James, like, I seriously um, want to thank you uh, for, for joining us today. We'll definitely have to have you back, seriously, because this was just... Thank you, man. The, the, pleasure, the pleasure is all mine, and, and this, has been, um, this has been amazing. That's why you have to kind of, like, pay attention to the universe and listen to what's going on, because now I know all of you guys. It's just an amazing, <laughs> an amazing thing. You know, you spent, you spent so many years putting something together, and people tell you it can't, you know, it can't get done, and it shows that you know, there's an Italian man called... I'll, call, I'll leave you with this. There was an Italian, there's, the, knowledge is stronger than belief, right? Like, knowledge is stronger than belief. I have a lot of Muslim friends and so, a lot of them don't drink alcohol, but a lot of them smoke cigarettes. It's a crazy thing. Like, they'll be talking to me, not drinking alcohol because it's haram, but you're smoking cigarettes. And I always tell them, like, that's interesting because cigarettes are so bad that White folks have outlawed it. You know, white folks outlaw something. This means it's <laughs> white folks gave it. Nah, nah, this is too evil. And then, and like, and like, it's because Newport isn't mentioned in the Quran, right? They didn't have Newports those days. So, because Allah would have outlawed Newports long before he outlawed a glass of wine. Okay, but it's because you believe. I always tell my friends, right? It's because you believe. In Allah, you don't know he's there. Two boxes in a ring. Usually, one boxer believes he can win, and the other boxer knows he's going to win. So, if you watch Mike Tyson versus Michael Spinks, the fastest heavyweight title bout in history, 91 seconds. When Mike Tyson goes and defeats Michael Spinks, that wasn't the amazing thing. The amazing thing is what he does after. He turns around to his trainer, Kevin Rooney, and just does this and walks off. He knew what he was going to do to that man. Knowledge is stronger than belief. I didn't believe I was going to make the hardly fall. I knew I was going to make it. And as hard as it was through, through those years, putting it together, I knew I was going to make the hardly fall, right? I just knew it. Like, no, nothing's going to get in my way. Not hell, no hell or high water. No, no Murphy's Law or COVID-19 is going to stop me making, making this movie. And a man from a studio called Ambi Studios, right? And everyone's going to come to this crossroads. Right, so I want everyone to just just hear this. A man from a, a company called Ambi Studios. He's the head of it. His name's Andre Evelino, a cool Italian guy. He never calls me James. He calls me bro, bro, bro. And he said, bro, you are never going to make this movie. Huh? Hmm? No one tells me never. It's my life. It's like saying you're never going to wear jeans, denim. You're never going to make this movie. And then he said a really deep thing. He said, take five million dollars. Make any movie you want. Five million dollars is a lot of money. Make any movie you want. If this is successful, then bro, 
You make another movie, I give you seven million. You make another movie. If that's successful, bro, I give you 10 million. People want to work with me. I am giving you five million to make your first movie. Make your first movie. Uh, yeah, but my first movie, brother, is the heart of the fall, it's a Western. Bro, it's too big. This is your debut movie. It's too big. The script, it looks, it looks 30, 40 million. It's too big. And I'm telling you, it was 40. And I told him, look, man. A human being's biggest flaw is when something is named, it's no longer magic. That's not magic, that's FaceTime. That's not magic, that's Bluetooth. That's not magic, that's infrared. What, is there a man called infra, whose color is red, hopping out your phone and switching over your TV? Speak to Nikola Tesla, the day before he gave us the radio wave. This tish is magic. And I went, we are magical creatures. Just because my name is James Samuel, it doesn't mean I'm not magic. Just because I'm in front of you, it doesn't mean I'm not magic. I'm magic. And my first movie is a work, in my eyes, of magic. I was thinking the budget was going to be 40. It ended up being 90, $90 million for my first, uh, first movie. But I knew I was going to make it. Nothing was going to stand in my way because I didn't believe for a second. I just knew I was gonna make it. And I knew there's an audience for it because I exist. And so do billions of others like me, not just black people, but billions of other people that wanna see, that tell themselves they don't like Westerns because they're malnourished, malnourished. No wonder, no wonder it's hard to meet a woman that likes Westerns if they're erased. From, and when they're shown, they're prostitutes. Like, I won't like them either, right? <laughs> and black people, so, so, Knowledge is stronger than belief, man. Like when you when you're walking the road, know where you're going, right? And don't let anyone, don't let anybody uh, limit or, or or limit your destination. It's not an ambition. I hate people saying it's really ambitious. It ain't ambition. It's a destination. Do not let anybody limit or ceiling your destination with their own limitations. You know what I mean? Don't let no one ceiling your destination with their own limitations. Know where you're going, and keep walking towards it and then in the end what happens the beauty of making something like the hardly fall is i meet all you guys now we all you know know each other like i meet all you guys and we can all communicate and talk about all the stuff we like and dislike and film and so that's an amazing that's an amazing thing and look how we're doing it through wireless it's all it's all literally it's all magic the things we take take for granted we walk down the street going, ah, we can't even look at that magical flaming thing in the sky we call a sun. This is magic and we ignore it every single day. Oh, it's too hot. Like we never marvel at all the things that is that is around us. I love uh uh I love the fact that we can marvel. Most deaf he always goes, wow, with everything. I always make fun of these. He's like, wow, but because he really sees the magnificence in life. And I always want to search for that wow moment. And this today is a wow moment for me, you know what I mean? I was just chilling, minding my own business on Twitter. Next minute I meet Jackie, Nick, Deborah, Justin, Gabrielle, Michelle, uh, Katrina, like just all the gods in the, in the, in the, uh, Courtney. Like this is an amazing, it's an amazing thing. Who knows what I would have been doing right now? <laughs> been watching one episode of, <laughs> I don't know, but my point is, my point is, in the words of Vinnie Jones in Guy Ritchie's debut movie, Lock, Stop and Two Smoking Barrels, it's been emotional. <laughs>
Oh my gosh. On that note, James, thank you. Thank you so much. I know everyone that we did not get to questions, um, but I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Um, thank you I loved it. much. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. This is a gift. Uh, thank you to our panelists as well for joining us and educating us um, and getting into conversation. Um, a couple of things before everyone hops off. I just wanted to share with you again, so where you can find Our Voices Project. Um, so you can go to um, ourvoicesproject.com. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, if you go to our website, you can also get to our social media from there, um, as well as sign um, up for our newsletter if you haven't already opted in during registration. Um, so that is us there. And then um, we are going to be talking um, at the Anti-Racist Education Conference um, on March 12th. That's a Saturday from, we're going to be there. The event itself is from 9 to 3, but we will be talking um, at 1.15 just about how we're incorporating anti-racist curriculum into schools um, through visual storytelling. Up there at the top um, is a QR code if you would like to register. We will also send you uh, the link along with the recording of uh, tonight's event. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Um, and then next month, um, we are going to be talking about See You Yesterday, another film on Netflix um, that'll be on March 31st, the same time from 6 to 7.30. Um, just for all of those of you who haven't watched it yet, just as a warning, um, there is police brutality um, in the film. Um, but again, I do appreciate all of you for coming out, for hanging out with us. Um, James, once again, we'll have to do this again sometime because I could talk literally all day, like all day films. It's what I do. It's why I got into filmmaking. Um, this is why, like, I wanted to do this series. Um, thank you so very much. Thanks once again to our panelists and for all, all of our audience members. Um, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much, everyone. Peace to the Black guts. <laughs> thank you so much everybody thank you, thank you. love and appreciation James yeah. from Trinidad and Tobago oh, <laughs> my, my sister Easy, thank you thank you thank you oh, we see you thank you everyone thank you